Well, good morning again. I, um, I know there has to be one or two of you who was thinking or is even thinking now. You know, Sunam remembered the time change, okay? That wasn't an issue. But he forgot that Halloween was last Sunday and not this Sunday, wearing, wearing stuff like this right here. Uh, I have to tell you, this was shipped uh, from Korea, and I got it the middle of this week, and so I, I had to try it on. And um, playing on the television while I happened to be trying this on in the living room was the Uber Eats commercial with Elton John. And, and I thought, I belong in that commercial right now. <laughs> I could do that commercial with him as well as the other guy. <laughs> so... Um, um, you know, a lot of people come to, um, to Zen, or specifically to Korean Son, and in, in America here we just call it Zen because it's a more well-known phrase, and, and they think of, you know, getting rid of everything. Everything is very plain, very basic. Uh, there's a little Buddha statue on the altar and that's it, but the difference between Korean Son and some of the other East Asian traditions is the influence that Tiantai Buddhism and philosophy in China had. And Tiantai, or Lotus Sutra philosophy, uh, assumes that, that every sensory experience, every little thing that you sense, contains the seeds of awakening. So you don't diminish all of the color and, and the, all of this stuff and whatnot, but indeed you use it to enhance your own practice. So Korean Zen temples are, as you know, a couple of you who have been there know, uh, they're ornate and gold everywhere, and they're beautiful, and that's used to help you to, to manifest your own internal awakening. Hence the, uh, the bishop's casa here that I'm wearing uh, today for the first time. I'll probably only wear it for special occasions, but today was the first time, and I wanted to just talk about wearing things, outer symbols that we use in our practice to hopefully manifest an inner reality that we've experienced. Uh, there's a show that I watch nearly every day that it's on, uh, the Andy Griffith Show. Uh, the black and white episodes, which are for the first like six or seven years while uh, Don Knotts was there, and then it goes into color, and I, I don't watch those. But uh, I, I love Don Knotts, and I love some of the storylines that they, they have in that show. And uh, I've seen each show at least five times, and some of them probably 10 or 12 times, which is okay. And just earlier this week, I saw another episode uh, that I've seen many times, and it's called Deputy Otis. Now, Otis Campbell is the town drunk. And... Interestingly enough, he's played by a, gal, a guy from Michigan here, Hal Smith, who was born in Petoskey. And interestingly, Hal Smith was a teetotaler, didn't drink at all. But if any of you have ever seen Andy Griffith with uh, Otis Campbell, the town drunk, I mean, the guy plays a drunk better than a, a real drunk. I mean, it's just amazing, his acting ability. So Otis gets a letter in the mail, and it's addressed to the to the sheriff's office because un unbeknownst to Andy and to Barney, Otis had, when he's in, in the clink there with uh, sleeping off a drunk, 
He's used the, uh, the city stationery, the sheriff's stationery, to write letters to his brother and sister-in-law. And he kind of implies in these letters that uh, he's a deputy sheriff also. And um, so he's reading the letter, and they're coming to town later on that day. He hadn't seen them in years, and he's desperate. And he said, Andy, you know, what do I do? He said, you know, they think that I'm a deputy sheriff. So Andy actually swears them in, much to, to Barney's uh, consternation. You can imagine, Barney, how can you do that? How can you swear this drunk in as a deputy sheriff? He swears them in. And he says, Otis, go in the back there. There's a clean uniform there. Put it on. Shave back there and come on out. And Otis comes out and he looks great. And as it turns out, his brother-in-law disappears one night. And late at night, his brother-in-law comes staggering in the sheriff's office and there's Andy and Barney and there's Otis and his brother is drunk. And his brother had always said, you know, or as the family had always said, the brother would amount to, to something, whereas Otis never would. And here's the brother drunk. And Andy said, this is the brother you were so afraid of that you thought you had to impress? And here he's the town drunk and where they live? And Otis gives him a lecture. And it's really fascinating because now that he's cleaned up, and he's wearing the sheriff's uh, deputy uh, uniform, he feels inside, and he gives his brother some words of wisdom on how embarrassed he is and how ashamed he is of him. Of course, realizing he's not only talking to his brother, but he's talking to himself. And he actually stays sober for a while afterwards. Eventually he gets back on the sauce, but at least this had a positive effect on him for a little bit. That's kind of the idea that, that I feel when, when we put on our special clothing, when you've been ordained a Dharmakari, or when you've been ordained a clergy and you add a robe and a kasa to it. Um, there's an inner reality and there's this outer symbol that we manifest. Now I'm going to be real honest with you. It's not always easy to feel that what I might look like on the outside and what you might think of me in the position that I hold, especially now as bishop, that doesn't mean that I feel the same inside. In fact, oftentimes I feel much less. And it's like, am I really worthy of this? How can I dare to assume that I am worthy to be called the bishop in the Korean Buddhist table order? There's that doubt there. There's a little nagging doubt. In fact, if any of you, you've all heard of Mother Teresa, and she, over a, a number of years, used to write letters to a priest friend of hers. And she had more doubts than anyone you can believe. Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa, who's made a saint, she had more doubts. She doubted that God existed. She doubted in her capacity to manifest Jesus. I mean, she had doubts like you can't believe. She suffered from depression, and yet the world saw her as this, this wonderful, marvelous uh, nun working with the poor in India. I won't kid you. I do have my time when I feel those doubts, when I feel that uncertainty. Am I really worthy to answer this call? There's a, um, 
Catholic priest. He lived in the 1500s. He was a theologian and he was a, a social critic, a humanist. His name was Erasmus, Father Erasmus. And Erasmus actually, his writings were used by the uh, Protestant reformers to, to hasten that movement along. He stayed a Catholic priest his whole life, but in talking about what the Protestants were doing and what the Catholics were doing in terms of uh, the Protestants were jettisoning a lot of the, the church uh, uh, statues, uh, paintings, anything colorful. They were becoming extremely pious, extremely uh, barren of images, and their clothing became very plain. And he wrote, although it goes back, you know, centuries before him, he wrote this, Clothes maketh the man, clothes maketh the man, to dress within the formal limits and with an air to oneself gives men authority. I think it's kind of interesting because just wearing this particular casa, the bishop's casa, People here probably won't know what the hell it is, but if I were wearing this in Korea, they oh my God, there's a bishop right there. You know, it has meaning, it has understanding, and there's a certain authority that, that comes with that. When I was first um, ordained a Dharmakari, uh, it's the date I remember right off the tip of my tongue. For me, ordination as a Dharmakari, becoming formally a Buddhist, was the most important step in my Buddhist journey. I mean, all the other ordinations were great, but becoming a Dharmakari first and foremost, because there I vowed to the world, I vowed in front of other people, that rather than following the path I was on, which was the monotheistic Christian path, I vowed that I was gonna follow the humanistic, non-theistic Buddhist path. It worked for me. It still works for me, not that I disown my my Christian upbringing, I, I treasure and value it deeply, but the humanist, non-theistic Buddhist path really works for me because you're forced to work on yourself. You're not looking to God for answers. You're looking within yourself for answers. And at that time, uh, with that particular school, the Buddhist Society for Compassionate Wisdom, people didn't wear grays. Only Dharma students, only seminary students wore grays. And, um, however, there were three people, there were about 120 of us Dharmakaris that were ordained that day in Chicago. And three of the men shaved their heads. I thought, wow, that's really cool. They wanted an outward symbol of a, a new inward reality. And uh, I had my hair long and uh, I, I wore a shirt and a tie. I, you know, I looked, I looked clothes maketh a man, so I felt that was for me, you know, this is an important thing in my life. I'm going to wear a shirt and a tie to this. Uh, but the next day when I came home, that was July 3rd, 1997, a Thursday. When I came home on, uh, on that night, on Friday, July 4th, I woke up and I shaved my head. There it went. It's like, wow, not because I wanted to be cool or whatnot, but for me, I wanted something to hold on to, to remind me how important that step was for me the day before. And that was a step that didn't just, it wasn't just, it was 10 years in the making. I didn't just do it overnight. I mean, it was 10 years in the making before I finally committed to the path of Dharma. But it was that important to me. And in fact, for the first few months, I actually explored getting my name changed legally from Gary to Kogam, 
which was the, the Dharma name they gave me, looking back for wisdom and instruction, held a lot of meaning for me. I wanted people to realize that there was something going on within me, and I wanted them to be able to see it on the outside. Well, then when I had my Dharma teacher ordination at Still Point Zen Buddhist Temple in May of 2003, I don't remember the date. See, that, that should be important, and I can't remember the date other than it was May of 2003. Um, I had my grays on, and I had my robe, and I was given a kasa, a brown kasa. And, and I want to tell you something. From that day forward, having putting the, put those clothes on, those clerical robes, I felt a sense of responsibility that I had never felt before. Yeah, it was amazing. It's like, wow, I mean, this really means something. And people, they may not like what you say, but just by the very fact that you're now a, a Buddhist minister, people are going to call upon you. And they're going to set you up a little bit. You may not want to be set up on a pedestal, but they're going to look at you differently. And uh, I felt this tremendous sense of responsibility. And then when Bup Misa and him here started from, for our temple uh, podcast, a whole lot of years ago it was, and he would periodically bring out where people are downloading these things and listening to them. And I think it was every, every continent except Antarctica, people had downloaded our podcast and listened to them. And then I really thought, wow, I mean, we have a tremendous responsibility here. I mean... People literally across the world are listening to what we have to say. We better be darn sure of what we're saying and the faithfulness with which we're offering it up to them. These aren't games we're playing. These are people's lives. Probably the, um, one of the best symbols in, in primitive Buddhism um, and I, I used him and read about him some more this week. Uh, for someone who, who obviously, at least for a while, did not believe he belonged on the Buddhist path because of his heinous deeds, was uh, Ahimsaka. That was his given name, Ahimsaka. Not the one who non-harms. He came from a Brahmin family. And uh, his father sent him to university. At the time, it was like the Oxford of, of India. And um, he excelled in his studies, one of the best students there was. And his classmates got jealous because the professor really, really was fond of Ahimsaka. And they concocted a plan to uh, lie to the professor so that each of them can get a little bit of his time, too. You know, people want, hey, he's not the only one in this class. You know, we're here, too. And, um, and so the professor finally, by, by these students lying to him, uh, let Ahimsaka fall out of disfavor with him. And he said, if you want to get back into favor with me again, here's what I'm going to offer to you. I want 1,000 little fingers from the right hand of people. 1,000. And he said, you'll be back in favor with me and you'll be able to graduate. 
So what does Ahimsaka do? Rather than thinking about going to the charnel grounds, going to where the bodies are being burned and using corpses and cutting off their little fingers and collecting them over time, what does he think of? He thinks of killing people. So obviously within his uh, makeup, there, is the, there are the seeds of violence from that lifetime, from previous lifetimes, that all of a sudden are starting to come to fruition. And rather than going to the charnel grounds, what does he do? He becomes a, a, a heinous robber and murderer. And this one particular area north of, uh, of the city, I mean, he basically ruled that entire area, and people were afraid to go uh, in there because he was there. And the story is probably, you know, uh, built up a whole lot, and the story goes that he had 999 little fingers, and he was now called, now he wasn't called the Himsika anymore, him of nonviolence. He was called Angulimala, finger necklace. You know, you guys all have, well, I don't know if you've got your malas on or not, but malas, bead malas. Uh, so his was called Anguli, finger mala, Anguli, uh, finger necklace. And the story goes, then he ran into the Buddha. And somehow or other, the Buddha managed to impress him. And uh, he never got the thousandth finger. Instead, the Buddha said, come, follow me. Probably not that easy. You know, there's probably a whole lot more to this story in actuality. But he becomes a monk immediately. He takes, the, uh, takes refuge and takes the precepts. This is about the 20th year in the Buddha's ministry. This is just before uh, Anatta comes into, into play. And he actually becomes the attendant of the Buddha for a while. He shaves his head, he shaves his beard, he puts on the yellow robes, he has his begging bowl. Now at that time, monks were viewed oftentimes by village people with a little bit of skepticism. Because if you got into the Sangha, if you became an ordained monk, and this is the same for some other religious traditions too, the Jains and, and whatnot, and some of the Vedic traditions. But if you became a religious, ordained religious person, you couldn't be arrested or prosecuted by the law. So oftentimes there are some really nefarious type of people that were joining up with the Sangha. Him probably being the worst of them. And so the village folk knew that who he had been. Angulima, there goes Angulimala. And the Buddha told him right off the bat, he says, even though you're a wonderful uh, disciple, you're a wonderful monk, you're growing wonderfully, and eventually became a saint, you became enlightened in our heart. Uh, he said, you know, your, your, your spirit is great, your spiritual energy is okay, but he said, you're going to suffer bodily because of all the harm that you've created over your lifetime. Our karma, our actions still have a way of manifesting fruit down the road. No matter how good we become, we still have to pay for our, I'll say, sins, our misdeeds, our missteps, our stumbling, our faltering, our falling down. Sooner or later, it comes around. But Angulimala wore his yellow robe. He wore his shaved head, his shaved face, carried his bowl proudly, proudly. I'm sure he didn't always feel 
the resonance between the outer symbol that he represented and the inner reality because of his past life. Now, I certainly, my life has not been that bad. My actions have not been that cruel. But certainly there's still that discordance sometimes between what I may look like and what I may feel like inside. And you all know what I'm talking about. We all feel those types of things in our lifetime. But may we like this robe with all these flowers and designs on it, this beauty. May each of us in our lives manifest like this, which is within us. That jewel, that luminosity, that Buddha nature is within us. It's just for up, for, up to us to manifest it. Thank you.